You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues, where we are once again bridging that sacred secular divide book by book. Um, I'm just going to share a little insight with you all, something about me that you may or may not already know. Um, Every time I sit down in front of this microphone, whether I'm by myself or I'm with someone else, I have this overwhelming feeling of anxiety. Um, First of all, it's very difficult to put yourself out there in the public sphere and allow your thoughts to be on display for anybody to look at or offer an opinion on. Um, Content creation is very, very personal. Even if you're discussing someone else's work, it's still your thoughts on their work that are out there for the public to disseminate. Um, and so I say that because there are certain subject matters that cause me a little more anxiety than others. Um, and so I want to tell you that I sit down to discuss certain things with a sense of responsibility. I feel this overwhelming sense of responsibility that I am going to offer opinions on something that may be um, un- unpopular. Um, or maybe it won't be. I don't know. I'm going to leave that to you to decide. However, I I just want to I just want to make a point of saying that I do this with the utmost respect for everybody involved in any conversation on a subject matter. Um, I don't have to agree with you to have respect for you. I would hope that you could still have respect for me, even if you disagree with me. However, there's some of you out there that have proved you are not capable of that. I'm just saying. Um, and on any given day, I may not be either. Anyway, I digress. So I I. I enter the subject of this book with this this uh, warning, if you will. It's a charged sub- subject. Um, and as such, people are going to feel very strongly about it. I'm going to invite you to step outside of your preconceived ideas, your belief system, your religious, political idealism, and think logically without emotion. I know that's rough. Doing anything without emotion, I understand. It's a tough thing. Anyway, so with that being said, now that I've got you all nervous and worried, or at least I have myself all nervous and worried, um, I'm going to introduce the book. So the book that I chose, first and foremost, I'm going to tell you it's an older book. Uh, So a a lot of the stuff in it is very dated. So I'm doing something a little different. While I'm using this book as my jumping off point, I actually am going to use it in a fashion to bring in some other, uh, a couple other books. Um, as well as a documentary that was just released to join the conversation, if you will, um, so that we have a more updated conversation about the subject matter. So after that, again, another another little introduction there. The book is actually called Blinded by Might, Can the Religious Right Save America? I know, I know, some of you are getting uptight already. Um, you're already starting to throw words about around like, well, what about the liberals and and all that? Yeah, just calm down. I'm just telling you what the name of the book is. I didn't write it. Um, anyway, the authors are Cal Thomas, Ed Dobson. This book was actually suggested to me quite a while ago, about a year ago, I think, um, by my good friend Keith Giles over at the Heretic Happy Hour. Um, it was one of the books I think that he it either inspired or that he used as source material for his book, um, Jesus Untangled which by the way is by Choir uh, Choir Publishing. So if you're looking for that, I'm sure you can find it. Keith has wrote like 10 books since then, I think, um, because he's such a show off. But anyway, I'm kidding, Keith. I love you. Uh, Anyway, Blinded by Might, Can the Religious Right Save America? I'm going to read you a little bit uh, from the book jacket so it gives you a little bit of an idea. As I said, this is an older book. 
It was written in 1999, so yes, quite a few years ago, and much of what they discuss in the book was about a movement um, that was even 20 years previous to that. So we're talking about quite a bit of history involved here, and that's why I wanted to update it a little bit by bringing in some other things to join the conversation. So here is part of the description from the book jacket. Uh, Authors Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson once believed the best way to fight the liberal agenda, that's in air quotes, was to beat them at their own game, mobilize voters, organize boycotts, get invited to the White House, and raise a ton of money to keep the war chest full. Not anymore. Blinded by Might takes you inside the early and heady days of the moral majority. Some of you know those terms. Tracing its well-intentioned but fatally flawed battle plan aimed at reversing America's slide into a moral wasteland. It shows how groups like the Christian Coalition, which stepped in when the moral majority ran out of steam, have not changed, cannot change, and will not change the trajectory of American culture. Written by two conservative Christians who worked closely with Jerry Falwell in the 1980s, Blinded by Might explains what you can do for your country that 20 years of heavily financed political activism has failed to do. And by the way, that's about 40 years of heavily financed political activism at this point. So anyway, there is the subject matter. As I said, the book's a little dated. So as I was reading it, sometimes it was a little funny. I'd had to laugh here and there because some of the some of the ideas were very dated. Of course, culture has changed. Society has accepted a lot more now than when this book was written as it pertains to hot button issues within religious idealism and within political I- idealism. Um, so that's the subject matter. As I said, this is a jumping off point. I'm going to use a couple of other things. Um, I'm going to start, I want to read you something. This book is going to be coming up on a podcast. Uh, most of you know that people, when you join me on the podcast, you get to choose the book. So I didn't choose this, this book. Um, but it just fits so well with this discussion. I decided to use a little bit out of it. Anyway, this book, uh, is called Jesus for President, Politics for Ordinary Radicals. So see, we kind of balanced it out with the book titles as far as conservative and, you know, liberal. Um, This book is by Shane Claiborne and Chris Haw. Um, And again, we're going to come back to this book on a later date because I have a I have a guest, a co-host that's going to be with me that actually chose this book. So we'll go back to it. But I wanted to read a little bit from the beginning because I feel like it introduces the subject matter, probably from the perspective that most of us can recall it uh, coming from. So this is the beginning of his book. You grew up in a good family, hardworking dad, and a mom who was there when you needed her. They taught you and your little brother to share and showed you how to pray every night before bed. In Sunday school, you learned about Jesus and sang all the songs with the rest of the kids. There was Noah and his ark, Moses and the Ten Commandments, and little baby Jesus asleep in the hay. You learned about the blessing that was America and were grateful to live in a country led by good, Christian leaders. With a hand over your heart or above your brow, you pledged allegiance to God and country, for the Lord was at work in this holy nation. But lately, you're beginning to wonder if this is really how God intended things to be. And you question if God is really working through places of power. Maybe you wonder, God had, to- had, had God had something totally different in mind. So that's just the beginning of that book, but I thought it introduced that subject very well um, because I was raised that way. I remember sitting in Sunday school with the felt boards and all the children's Bible stories. And yes, the flag was always at the front of the church along with the Christian flag. And even sometimes, if I remember right, there was Pledge of Allegiance sometimes in church. There certainly was in school. 
Um, and we were taught to believe that it was that God and country were synonymous. Um, later in my life, I was in the Marine Corps. Many people know that. Uh, and we used to joke about that all the time. It was God, country, core. Those were, the, those were the priorities. And, you know, as long as God had top billing, you know, it didn't matter that he had to share that billing with country and core in, in that case, but certainly with country. Um, many of us were raised with idealism that, you know, uh, led us into a thought process that America is a Christian, a Christian nation. It was founded on Christian principles. Um, we stand fully by our right to religious freedom based on the constitution. And in all honesty, and I'll probably bring this up later, but many of us are more familiar with the constitution than we are the Sermon on the Mount. And as Christians, that's a big problem. So we have to start talking about these things. So anyway, these authors of this specific book, um, brought in the subject matter. And I thought it was very interesting because, um, they actually, well, the one anyway, worked specifically with Jerry Falwell, senior, not the one that everybody knows now, but senior. And of course, he came from a long line of Baptist uh, pastors. He was very conservative, was very much in favor of uh, conservative idealism, uh, religious um, idealism as it pertains to conservative nature, fundamentalism, things like this. He became very embroiled in politics. And so that's some of the stuff we're going to get into. But before we do, I wanted to read you a few quotes because I thought this was very interesting. If you do a very quick search on religion and politics, all these little quotes will pop up. And I just sat and read them for quite a long time. I was kind of in, enthralled with it. Um, of course, this is one that gets thrown around quite often lately. It's a Billy Graham quote. It was from Parade Magazine in 1981. And it says, I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. It would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. Now, that's a little different than what we hear now. Uh, and, and to be fair, going even further uh, in, the, in the Bush presidency, the second Bush presidency, um, there was a time when Billy Graham stood with George W and prayed for our troops and basically gave, you know, carte blanche for war in the Middle East. So we have to look at this. That there are things that are deeply embedded in each one of us that when it comes to our Christianity, our religious idealism and our politics, they're so deeply embedded in one another that we have a hard time separating them. Um, even if you're Billy Graham, uh, I have another quote here. I thought this one was really cool. Uh, Frank Herbert. I don't know if you guys know who that is, but he is a fiction. He was a fiction writer. He's passed away. Um, this is a quote from him. When politics and religion are intermingled, a people is suffused with a sense of invulnerability and gathering speed in their forward charge. They fail to see the cliff ahead of them. Now I want to come back to that one because I have some ideas on that and, and stuff I've been saying for a, quite a long time. Um, that fits into this conversation. Uh, here's one by Jerry Falwell, senior, again. The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Wow. Um, as soon as I read that, my first thought was, wait a minute, Christians don't own this country. We have freedom of religion here, which means that other religions are actually a part of this country as well. So how do we claim moral superiority based on the constitution and leave out whole other groups of people that believe differently than we are and say that 
this is our country to run. That's it's I I I have no other word for that other than silliness. Um, here's a good one by Mahatma Gandhi. Those who say religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion is. Oh, that's a mic drop. Seriously, because I think for a lot of people, politics has almost become their religion. Um, they intersperse it with a little bit of scripture here and there to back it up and give it some kind of moral authority. But for the most part, it's all about their politics and the people that they want in charge of their politics. Um, again, this is another one by Frank Herbert, and I'm going to add a little bit to the end of it. This is, I'm just giving you a heads up on that. I'll tell you when that is. Uh, the quote is governments, if they endure, always tend increasingly towards aristocratic forms. No government in history has been known to evade this pattern. And as the aristocracy develops, governments tend more and more to act exclusively in the interests of the ruling class whether that class be hereditary royalty, oligarchs of financial empires, entrenched bureaucracy, and this is my addition, or religious idealism. Okay, so let's start talking about the the beginning of this movement, uh, this wedding between politics and religion. It started quite a while ago, and it may even go prior to this, what is mentioned in this book, but this is where I'm starting because of this book. Um, so I want to go, I'm going to pull up the book here and you're going to hear me turn in pages. You guys always hear me turn in pages because I like to quote directly from what I've read, make sure I get it right. Even if I mess it up in the reading, I try not to do that. But anyway, um, this is a quote from Jerry Falwell upon dissolving the moral majority. He said, when I founded the moral majority, my goal was to engage the religious right and in return to change the direction of the country on its moral and social dilemmas. Ten years later, we feel that our mission is accomplished. I, I'm going to have to disagree with Mr. Falwell there. I don't know how he decided that it was accomplished, but whatever. That was their mission, right? To change the direction of the country um, on its moral and social dilemmas. Well, first of all, we have to ask who's who's deciding. I mean, whose morals are we using first and foremost? But who's deciding what the social dilemmas are? I think these are about foundational questions we have to ask ourselves in the conversation. Um, we have to define the players. We have to define the agendas. We have to define the terms. Without those kind of definitions, it's impossible to have a conversation because everybody's coming at it from their own perspective or their own definition of terms. So, I, I another t- another few terms that get tossed around in this book quite a few times. Um, and I'm just going to make a comment on our, uh, the terms like traditional values or family values. And again, I want to ask you to step outside of your your thoughts on that and say, whose values are we talking about? Because using those terms assumes that we all define those values the same way. And I call bullshit. We do not define those things the same way. Everybody's family is different. So family values would denote something different for each person or each group of people, Um, even traditional values. Well, again, we have to go back to the topics and conversation of what, what constitutes traditional. And in talking about traditional, this is the same thing as saying we're going to go back to being great again, or any of these things, these things that get tossed around all the time. Who decides when we were great? And was it only because it was great for them? Who were the people that it wasn't great for? Right? What about marginalized groups? Right? We've had a lot of racist history in our country. Those groups did not feel that they're, you know, that there was a, a time of greatness for them previously. So traditional does not denote better. 
in any way, shape, or form, except to the person using the term traditional, because they are thinking back to something in their history that mattered to them and that was good for them. All right, so that's another just a sidebar there. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the fundamental movement. Um, He goes into a, a pretty good list here. Uh, he says the, the fundamental movement took its name from the publication of a series of booklets in 1909 named The Fundamentals, A Testimony of Truth, written by scholars around the world. Um, they came from Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal denominations, uh, different positions within those theological streams. And they were articles. They were designed to identify the fundamental doctrines of Christian faith, right, which they believed were under attack. Um, from scientific inquiry. We all know, or I hope that it's still being studied in school. I don't know. Um, There was the whole Scopes trial, uh, which of course was, you know, a landmark case as it pertained to evolutionary um, schooling and education in our, in our school systems. Um, So they felt like science was attacking religious idealism. And so they had a response. We've seen several responses. I'm sure you can all think even recently, uh, letters that have been written from various religious leaders that set up some kind of, this is our bottom line, this is our line in the sand idea. It's a list of something. Anyway, in this case, they had five fundamental doctrines that they identified as basic tenets of the Christian faith. Let's see. Let's see if you guys all think that these are the same now. I don't know. Uh, Inspiration and infallibility of the Bible. Well, we know that that's under a great amount of conversation. Um, We've discussed it even here on this podcast. Uh, there are people that believe that it's 100% infallible and 100% inspired, basically the word of God. I mean, like dictated. Um, there are others, however, that feel it's that there's wisdom there, but that it's not necessarily without error. And the debate there continues. But that's one of the tenets of this fundamentalist movement. The second was the deity of Christ. Um, of course, that's pretty crucial to most Christian doctrine, like that Christ actually was God. That there was deity involved. The third was the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Again, this one's up for discussion and debate. I mean, substitutionary atonement is something that is um, pretty embedded in American culture and probably in other Christian cultures as well. Um, But there are other atonement theories. And I'll be quite honest with you. I didn't know that until, gosh, I don't know, five or six years ago when somebody introduced me that I was like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, even still, I mean, I have to really work through that in my head because it's so deeply embedded in my belief system. So we have to, in in the in the in the, the thought process of this group, identifying substitutionary atonement of Christ was requirement. Um, the resurrection of Christ, the the bodily resurrection. Again, that's another subject that's up for debate. But most Christians will adhere to uh, the resurrection of Christ in bodily form. Um, and then finally, the second coming of Christ. Yeah, there's another one that really we have quite a bit of discussion on. So these were the fundamental things that this group of people built this whole agenda, this this political religious agenda on. Um, They had very succinct ideas about how society should function, um, who should hold the power in that society, and how this was all supposed to work. They had very, very... uh, big ideals on that, right? So the birth of fundamentalism at the beginning of the century, um, it, it's interesting because if you look back, even in like before 1920, there were pretty much articulated positions, um, on the liberal side and the fundamentalist side. And that's just, that's just history. If you go back and do some study into that, 
Um, but I think that back in that time, there was actually a, a major conference that was held um, with more than like 5,000 people. I'm looking for it here because I think it was, uh, yeah, in 1918, uh, conservative Christians held their first major national conference in Philadelphia with more than 5,000 people. And uh, they be- they began advocating for the establishment of new Bible institutes and conferences to combat the influence of liberalism. So they were identifying what they were against, but they had not yet stepped into the political realm and used it as a battering ram or a way of backing down the liberal agenda, right? So this, again, is very much the, the foundationals or the genesis of this, this political movement. Um, I have a question. I, I like to ask this question. I, I think it's something to think about. I'm going to give you something to think about. And I'm going to use an example. I had a conversation with somebody at one point in which uh, we were hotly uh, contesting the ideas of feminism. Now, I'm not saying this has anything to do with the subject matter. I'm using it as an example. But my question is this. Does the pushing of one agenda actually empower the other side of that agenda? My point being this, if you feel very strongly um, that women have stepped outside of their roles, their traditional roles, and you advocate, you know, you're fine with women working, you know, you're fine with, with some of the stuff, but women have just gotten way too mouthy and they've pushed their own agenda far too far and we have to push back against it. As soon as you start pushing back against those ideas, do you not create a countergroup who is now angry in response and pushes even further and harder? back against your established doctrine. I think that stands for any kind of discussion, whatever the subject matter may be. So if we bring it back to this discussion and we say that this was the genesis of conservative movement into the political realm, does it not stand to reason that as soon as a liberal side began to feel chastised or infringed upon, or let's say even another religion began to feel as though they were being left out of the conversation, does that not then um, encourage them on some level to, to become even more heated and more involved in the conversation. So then it just becomes this, this whole competition, so to speak, of, of both sides trying to fight for, the, for more ground. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, as it pertains to this subject, I start thinking about competition and might and power and all of these things, even like the title of the book, that doesn't sound Christian to me. <laughs> I don't know. I have, maybe I have some weird idea of Christianity. And I, I'm sure a lot of you already, may already think that. I may. I don't know. Um, but I think that that's worthy of questioning because it, it speaks to how we handle certain things, how we attempt to change things. Um, if we are trying to push by might or by power, we are no longer working towards the betterment of ourselves in society. We are only trying to gain control. Okay, back to the book. I digress. I usually do. You should be used to it by now. Um, so the, mo- the Moral Majority, again, was created by Jerry Falwell. It was a religious organization. One of the authors worked with him very closely within that organization for a period of time. Um, and so they had pretty much, they, they created almost a doctrine of, of what, they, what they believed politically uh, and how, and of course they brought into that their, their religious their religious idealism into that as well. Um, so here's, I'm going to read you a section that I thought this was kind of clever. Um, some of the stuff that they believed I, I actually had to agree with. 
So anyway, the, uh, the moral majority was seen as an organization to stop the rising tide of secularism. I've already discussed that. So he, this is a quote from the author. He said, as a pastor, I kept waiting for someone to come to the forefront of the relig- American religious scene to lead the way out of the wilderness. Like thousands of other preachers, I kept waiting, but no real leader appeared. Finally, I realized that we had to act ourselves. Something had to be done now. The government was encroaching upon the sovereignty of both the church and the family. The Supreme Court had legalized abortion on demand. The Equal Rights Amendment, with its vague language, threatened damage to the traditional family, as did the rising sentiment towards so-called homosexual rights. Most Americans were shocked, but kept hoping someone would do something about this moral chaos. Um, And of course, Jerry Falwell stepped up to the plate. Um, so after he formed the moral majority, they actually created a platform. I'm going to show you that I'm going to share with you the 10 points of their platform. As I said, some of them, I went, okay, no, cool. That makes sense. And I think that they actually had, um, good intentions, but as most people know, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Um, and I'm not sure I'm not suggesting they had absolute power. Calm down. Anyway, first tenet of the platform, we believe in the separation of church and state. I find that one a little laughable just simply because now we're very much involved in trying to include religion or the church into state through the form of politics. But anyway, I feel like this one gets used a lot when you're trying to get something done that you want done. But when you disagree with something from another you know, group, you suddenly don't want their religious viewpoints. Anyway, again, my opinion. Uh, point two, we are pro-life. We believe that life begins at fertilization. We strongly oppose the massive biological holocaust that is resulting in the abortion of one and a half million babies each year in America. Um, Yeah, Uh, again, I'll go on record here. I am pro-life, but I will also say that I will never, ever, 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 ever say that somebody else should tell me whether I am allowed to be pro-life or pro-choice. That's not my place. Again, my personal opinion, but I am pro-life. Pro-traditional family. Again, we've already talked about this. First of all, we have to ask what does traditional mean and what does a family look like? But anyway, that's part of their platform. Number four, they oppose the legal drug traffic in America. Um, yeah, we still have a pretty big problem there. I, I can totally get that. They oppose pornography. Mm, that's another whole conversation. I, I know some people that would that would push back on that a little bit, but whatever. Um, we support the state of Israel and Jewish people everywhere. That one's going to get you in trouble if you start down that road, because quite honestly, that can be kind of a dangerous conversation and probably should be. Um, seven, we believe that a strong national defense is the best deterrent to war. Well, hello, hallelujah. That is the American statement right there. If I've ever heard one strong national defense, lady, ladies and gentlemen, it gets no stronger than us. $597 billion used, um, towards our military each year, which far outweighs the majority of every other nation in the world, even if they're combined. Um, and again, you've probably heard me say this before. I'll say it again. $597 billion a year on the war machine and the men and women with boots on the ground see very little of it, my friends. That's a voice of experience. Uh, anyway, number eight, they supported the equal rights of women. Now, I thought that was surprising. I did not, uh, did not realize that was a part of their platform. Um, and I'll say this. It says, we agree with President Reagan's commitment to help every governor and every state legislature to move quickly to ensure that during the 1980s, every American woman will earn as much money and enjoy the same opportunities for advancement as her male counterparts in the same vocation. How's that going for you, ladies? This was said in the 1980s. How's that working out for you? You seeing that, you see, you seeing that equal pay yet? I don't think you are. 
Yeah. So I think they kind of failed there, but whatever. Uh, number nine, they believed an equal rights amendment was the wrong vehicle to obtain equal rights for women. Uh, we feel that the ambiguous and simplistic language of the amendment could lead to a court interpretation that might put women in combat. Oh, heaven forbid. As a woman who served in the military, it is my decision as to whether I want to put myself in that position. It's no one else's. And by the way, I'm going to say here again, and of course you see the things that get me all hyped up. I get it. I know I have I have my own hot buttons, but I'm willing to bet that the people that framed this platform were all men. And then they were trying to tell us as women whether the Equal Rights Amendment was the right or wrong vehicle to achieve goals. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Something's missing there. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, finally, the last tenet of the platform, we encourage our encourage our moral majority state organizations to be autonomous and indigenous. Moral majority state organizations may from time to time hold positions that are not held by the moral majority national organization. That was their disclaimer. That way, if somebody acted inappropriately, they could distance themselves from it. Okay. So they also said they were not a political party, that they did not endorse political candidates, and they were not attempting to elect born-again candidates. Look how far we have come. Okay. We may not have an actual political party that is religious in nature, but it, we're not far off of it. Um, they absolutely endorse political candidates now, and they absolutely are trying to get people elected that fit within their uh, religious idealism. That's absolutely 100% happening. Anyway, so that's kind of the tenets. Um, I know it's a lot of information, and I, of course, pontificated a little bit on each point. Forgive me. I'm sorry, but it's my podcast. Um, you can start a podcast, pontificate on whatever you want. I don't care. Uh, anyway, I'm kidding. I care about what you think. Um, so I have a question for you. Uh, as it pertains to political might, uh, does might make right? Is a majority always correct? Does a majority always look for the best in for others? Um, the answer is no. I, I don't know how you can answer that it would be yes. Might does not make right. It just means that you have more people on your side. Maybe you're all wrong. Well, I don't know. Um, I'm going to read a quote here. Um, find the, the page. Political power is about numbers. If one group defeats another by amassing greater numbers at the poll, that doesn't mean the group is right. It just means it won a battle in a never-ending war for political supremacy. That's what might makes right means. It doesn't mean that you have cornered the market on truth, that you have the totality of inerrancy. It means that you just have enough people, you've convinced enough people that you're correct, and now you have the numbers to force others to do what you want. Welcome to the democratic process. That's the way it works. So um, I have a note here and I'm gonna have to go to the page because I don't remember what I wrote this note on. My note says dangers of mixing. So let me go to my page and let's let's look at that. Oh, here it is. One of the dangers of mixing politics and religion is that you begin to think the only way to transform culture is by passing another law. Ooh, now there's a conversation. If I just create a law that says drugs are bad, I fix the drug problem. Oh, wait, that's not how that works. If I create a law that says women shouldn't have abortions, abortion goes away. Oh, wait, no. Well, shit. Of course, this is supposed to work, but it doesn't. And of course, we have um, examples of that in our past. Um, most people are familiar with the ideas of prohibition. Um, if you don't know what that is, 
seriously, educate yourself. I mean, seriously. Anyway, prohibition. I'm going to read it here because I had it up and it was on another computer screen. So you heard me typing that in. But um, basically the driving force of prohibition, the prohibition movement was pretty much religious organizations. There were some women's uh, organizations in there as well, but they actually believed that less alcohol consumption would decrease the amount of crime, spousal abuse, and raise the overall amount of piety in America. Okay. So when we start looking in that, we find out that how did it affect? Well, it, it had a big effect. So they actually legalized this, right? They legalized the idea that you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. Well, one of the things that it did, of course, was it closed all the breweries, uh, the bars, the distilleries, the saloons, pubs, whatever you want to call them. It closed them all. So we had lost quite a few jobs, first and foremost. And, but it had other effects on other industries. So think about like the barrel makers, the truckers, the waiters, any, reli- any um, job that was a part of serving alcohol to people was adversely affected by this prohibition. So was prohibition successful? Well, you can make some arguments. Um, there, obviously, I'm sure there was some health uh, benefits to less people drinking. I'm sure we had less cirrhosis of the liver and whatnot. Um, but there was other problems that came up from that. First of all, the homicide rate increased, which is interesting. Anyway, there's a whole discussion on this. You can go read on this. It's very, very um, interesting. But the point being that we have tried more than one time to legislate morality and decide what people should be doing. And in doing so, we have created a greater demand for whatever it is we're prohibiting. All right. So have we created change? Have we created greater moral and societal um levels have have we have we improved those well probably not and it was a failure because everybody knows seriously you can drink anytime you want now um I, here's what's interesting to me and i don't know if you guys know this or not i'm actually recording this of course while we're all being quarantined at home because of the covid-19 virus um and i thought this was funny the other day i found out from one of my clients she lives down the street from me we were on the phone chatting and she said something about um she was having a margarita delivered and i said what are you talking about and she's like oh yeah this restaurant right up the street they'll deliver a gallon of margaritas to you and i thought well hot damn that's no i'm kidding i don't drink but if i did i'd order a gallon of margaritas so prohibition obviously worked um no it didn't it, it didn't fix anything and no Anytime that we try and prohibit prohibit an uh, an activity, of course, that activity then becomes much more appealing to the masses. Um, again, I know this gets talked about a lot. I've not done the statistical research on this, so for God's sake, uh, this is anecdotal. But honestly, in places that are highly reli- or states that are high on the religious idealism scale, the use of pornography is much higher. I don't know if causation equals correl- correlation equals causation, but an argument can be made that says once you prohibit something, it then becomes something that people want. So we have a real danger with trying to arbitrate or legislate people's behaviors. Um, and I know that that's most what of our most of what our laws do. Of course they do. Um, but we have to really think about that. What's the reasoning? Of course, we have a law in the books that says thou shalt not murder. 
or well, actually that's the Ten Commandments. We have laws on the books against homicide, but it's broken down into different categories like manslaughter, murder, murder one, murder two, what have you. Those are based on a legal argument, um, but we have the for the greater good, right? So I guess it's still a conversation about what constitutes the greater good. Well, that's another whole conversation. Um, but as I said, uh, prohibition obviously did not work. The war on drugs has not worked. Um, the, as a matter of fact, the only way we've lessened um, criminal cases in drugs is actually legalizing drugs. I'm not saying I'm for that or against it. I'm just saying that that's another conversation that we could have. All right. So I had told you I had other things, other um sources that I wanted to bring into this. Not too long ago on this podcast, I sat down with Kevin Miller. Many of you know him. Um, He was the filmmaker who did the documentary Hellbound. That was my first first introduction to Kevin. Since then, Kevin and I have chatted. We're friends on Facebook. I read a lot of what he has written there. Um, And when he was on the podcast with me, he spoke about an upcoming documentary he had coming out called J-E-S-U-S-A. And I actually just got that not too long ago. He's made it available. You can, if you search for that, you'll find it. It's available to rent or to buy. It's really inexpensive. Um, And I wholeheartedly suggest it because I thought it was incredibly interesting. I actually sat, I choked my husband. I'm like, I think I had to pick my job off the floor like 10 separate times, especially in the first like 20 minutes of it. Um, because I did not realize that there were actually congregations out there that had their, the pastors out there that had their congregations on rifle ranges. Um, but yes, there are, uh, shocking to me. Anyway, J-E-S-U-S-A, he did a documentary is based on how embroiled, uh, religion is in American politics and how much we identify not only as Christians, but as American Christians. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, but some of the, I'm going to give you some of the takeaways that I had from watching the documentary. Um, and it's stuff that I've said before as well. And, and my poor husband, like he is the benefit beneficiary of all this conversation from me where I just simply sit and just, you know, barrage him with all these thoughts. He'll answer back every now and then and I'll argue him to the ground because that's what I do. Um, and then he listens to the podcast too. So he gets a double dose. So I'm sorry, honey. But anyway. So we had this conversation last night about this documentary. And what's interesting to me is if you think back in the history of Christianity, of course, Christianity was not a dominating religion in the, you know, in the time of Jesus. It was a subversive movement. Um, It was built on the fringes. Certainly wasn't a part of empire in any way, shape or form, not only the Jewish sacramental system, uh, sacrificial system, but, but more importantly, the Roman empire of that time who held the Jews in captivity, basically. Um, this was a fringe ideal. Uh, Christ was a fringe character. He was a rabbi. Uh, rabbis were not unusual in that time, but some of what he espoused and brought into the, the religious realm of the day was quite controversial even to the people of his own religion. Um, I don't think the Romans gave two shits about him, to be honest. And I know that's crass. I'm sorry, but I don't think they did. I think they only did in so much as that he caused a lot of uprising um, and problems within the community. And they just really didn't want that. Um, But, you know, Christians of those days were actually persecuted for being different. Like they were not demanding that they be the major voice. They were not demanding that everybody adhere to their ideals. Um, they were running for their lives. That was what actual persecution looked like. And as a matter of fact, if you go further into the history 
in the Roman Empire and you start to study the effects of Christianity in the Roman Empire, I mean, you you find all kinds of atrocities that took place. I mean, the Apostle Paul um, spent time in a Roman prison. He wrote from a Roman prison. He wasn't there because, you know, he was part of the, the, the dominant theology of the day. He was there because he was espousing ideas that were harmful to what the political leaders of that time felt were correct. Um, so the church then didn't grow by political might or religious might. It grew by how people interacted with one another, right? Right? Like a place of sacrifice. I mean, Jesus, of course, being the ultimate example of sacrifice. Um, that's how we're called to live our lives. Love, mercy, you know, these ideas of how they treated one another and the idea of family. And one of the ones that typically gets overlooked, the idea of breaking bread together that was very big in Jewish culture. Breaking bread together was a part of, of the experience. This was how people were changed. This is how minds were changed. It wasn't because a group of people got together and they voted in an idea and said, now everybody has to live according to this idea. And as a matter of fact, even in our country today, if there's quite a few times, and I've seen it well, not as much recently, but definitely not too long ago, in which there are certain places in, a, in our country where Muslim communities are um, accused of trying to bring about Sharia law, or in other words, trying to use their religious ideals to enact law that would then be imposed upon everybody else. Huh. Wait a minute. How is that different from me trying to set up a law based on my religious ideas that would then affect everybody else? Oh, it's different because I'm Christian. That's why. Wait, okay. Obviously, I'm being a smart ass. But honestly, have we considered this? We cannot say that we enact change in people by declaring that they act in a certain way. It doesn't work. I've already discussed that, but it's it's worth repeating, right? Um, so I thought it was interesting in this documentary, like I said, he interviewed so many different people, uh, military people, uh, pastors, just authors, theologians. Um, I was amazed. There was one guy, and I, I just can't get past how he looked. He, he seemed so excited to be talking, which of course maybe he was, but he had this wild-eyed fascination look on his face to me. And he was talking about um, the idea that we have to differentiate between things in the Bible like kill and murder. And, and I agree with him. I really think that we have to go back to the historical, um, contextual definitions of words. Of course, that matters, right? But he was saying, well, you know, we have laws on the books that say, thou shalt not, uh, you know, that you're not allowed to kill. Well, that comes from the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not murder. He's like, but that definition is wrong. And so what he was doing is he was justifying the war machine, basically, and saying that there's nothing wrong with Christians being in favor of war and bombing other countries and eradicating other people that believe differently because Christianity is supposed to be dominant. I, I don't know about you. I, does that not shock you? I mean, it has never occurred to me to go bomb the shit out of somebody to make them believe in Jesus. I, it seems counterproductive, but maybe I'm, I don't know. I feel like I'm not wrong there, but maybe I am. Anyway, he's differentiating between kill and murder in, in an effort to justify the ability to go into another country or to bomb another country or to kill other people. And all I kept hearing in my mind was the words of Jesus in the New Testament where he talked about the, you know, the heart matter. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Like, um, 
if if you lust after a woman, it's the same thing as committing adultery. If you call someone, you know, an idiot, uh, it's the same as hatred in your heart. And hatred is the same thing as murder. Jesus always took it that extra step, right? He took it to the heart issue. So I don't know how we as Christians can justify war and things like that again. So I just bring that up for your consideration. It's something to consider. He talked about it in the film. I thought it was very much worth a conversation. Um, but one of the things that he talked about, um, or maybe it wasn't him. Actually, I have another source I'm going to bring in. Again, I'm going to mention my good friend, Keith Giles. He wrote his book, Jesus Untangled. And in that book, he goes into quite a bit of um, conversation on Bible verses. He's actually, Keith is very good at that. And bringing that into the moral conversation of the topic. And he, and I said this a little bit ago, I told you I would probably repeat it, but the idea of the constitution versus the sermon on the Mount. Um, I had a conversation last week or the week before with somebody who was pontificating their side of the argument on um, the rights. And, and I'm going to bring it back to what's happening now. Everybody can kind of get online, in line with this. But of course, many of us are stuck in our homes. We're being very much adversely affected by the idea of a, of a virus that is harmful. Um, there's a lot of arguing going on about whether it's being handled correctly, whether there's actually um, any kind of an emergency or if this is just something governmental. There's a lot of theories out there. Um, there's a lot of conspiracies out there. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying some of those may not be true. I'm just saying that right now, nobody knows. And so we were talking about the ideas of our rights. And what's interesting to me is so many of my friends are Christians. That's my, my denominational background. But so many of my friends who are Christians will immediately jump to the fact that they have rights afforded to them to the, by the Constitution of the United States. And so my question to my friend was, which kingdom do you identify with primarily? And I didn't get a response at first. And finally they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, either you are a Christian in the kingdom of God, or are you an American in the kingdom of America? And I understand that we live probably in a tension between the two. But my point being, which one do you identify with primarily? If your argument about taking care of other people or, you know, the safety of other people is about my rights are being infringed upon rather than having concern for those people and, and living sacrificially. My contention is you are living as an American citizen first before you are identifying as a Christian. And that's a strong statement. And it is also something that's very difficult to walk within that tension. I, I fully admit that. Um, but Keith actually brings up something in his book, and it was something that I've talked about before, but it's the idea of what apostleship is. Um, so what is an apostle? I mean, we've all talked about the apostles, you know, the, the, the 12 disciples were considered apostles. I've heard many different definitions. Uh, apostles were the disciples that actually physically knew Jesus in the flesh. Um, that was the definition of an apostle for some people. Um, uh, more, more currently apostles tend to be through, you know, through the fivefold, all this in the church, uh, apostles are are structured builders. They're building um, structure that other people work within. Yeah. Well, I think that apostle actually is more in line with the term ambassador. Um, and actually, this was a well-known concept back in Jesus's day. The Roman Empire used apostles, if you will, or ambassadors. They actually sent 
apostles or ambassadors, I'm going to use the term interchangeably, they sent them into the nations that they conquered. Those people had a job. It was their job to show how beneficial it was to be a part of the kingdom in which they were representing, in this case, the Roman Empire. So that there was less contention, there was less pushback, there was less infighting, and this was made it easier for Rome to conquer, right? So these people were sent there. They were not citizens of the country that they were sent to. They were ambassadors. They were somebody that, um, for all intents and purposes, were a citizen of the Roman Empire with all the rights afforded to them based on that identity, but they were sent and put into another country in order to show this country how they could live. Isn't that what you and I are supposed to be? Ambassadors or apostles of the kingdom of God? Um, Why are we trying to change things through legislation when we're supposed to be doing it by showing people what the kingdom of God looks like, how it functions, right? The kingdom of God is sacrificial, which means as a Christian, I give up my rights for the betterment of someone else. Difficult to do. I understand that. But that's still the way it's supposed to be. Um, there is no greater love than someone who lays down their life for their friend, right? The scriptures tell us that. And yet, all I hear is my rights, my rights, my rights. We need laws. We need people in charge that believe the way we do so that we can force everybody else to do it our way. Well, that's not, that's not what this looks like. That's not what apostleship looks like. Um, and it's upsetting. I mean, to be quite honest, I want to represent God well, and I just feel like I fail at it often. Um, I have no problem admitting that, but I think that if I'm going to rely on empire to spread the kingdom of God, that I have missed the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus's kingdom has never been about empire or hierarchy. I know a lot of people have made it that way, but that's not what it's ever been about. It's been about sacrifice and love, mercy, grace, all of these things, not about standing with your fist in the air, shaking your fist at people and declaring that you have the right. Um, so I'm going to hear at the end, I know my time's running out. And again, I know this, this is a big subject. This is stuff we could talk about for a long time. Um, so I'm trying to keep it within the realm of my my recording, you know, time fr- format. But I'm going to go back to the book that started the conversation. Uh, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen that wrote it, um, at some point he resigned from the moral majority. Uh, actually, I'll just read you what he said here. In the spring of 1987, I resigned from my positions at Liberty University, Moral Majority, and Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. I accepted the position of a pastor of Calvary Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Over the next several months, I re-examined my own life in light of what it meant to be a pastor and only a pastor. I was no longer the editor of a magazine. I was no longer a college administrator. I was no longer a board member of the moral majority. I was no longer a traveling speaker and lecturer on moral and political issues. Now I was just a pastor, but what does that mean? So this is what he came to the conclusion. The first decision I made was that I would avoid the press as much as possible. I wanted to go about the work of being a pastor without the glaring attention of the media spotlight. Second, I decided that political involvement would hinder my ministry as a pastor. 
Therefore, I would avoid all political entanglements. Entanglements. I would not attend either Republican or Democrat events. I would not march for or against anything. I was convinced that as a pastor, I was called to reach Republicans and Democrats and independents with the gospel. I was called to reach pro-life groups and pro-choice people. I was called to reach pro-gay and anti-gay people. If I engaged in political public activities, I ran the risk of alienating the very people I was called to reach. That's a huge point in my opinion. Third, I decided to focus on teaching the Bible. Fourth, I decided that we are to love people unconditionally just as God loved us. Those are some pretty straight up parameters. And I love that second point that if I am so involved politically, I alienate many of the people that I am called to reach with the gospel. Um, there's a quote at the beginning of the book. I'm going to see if I can find it real quick because I thought this was very interesting. This was some of the early pushback that came to for, uh, against the moral majority. It was somebody that was very well familiar with them, a gentleman named Harold Wilm- Wilmington. And he said, he argued that this new endeavor was a significant step away from preaching the gospel and might in the process contaminate the gospel. How much damage do we do to our testimony, if you will, using Christianese? How much damage do we do to our testimony when we espouse our political views and alienate those around us with whom we're supposed to be preaching the gospel? Probably quite a bit. And that goes for both sides, if we're going to talk dichotomously. It doesn't matter how you identify yourself politically. If you are using intimidation, um, moral superiority, self-righteousness in an effort to prove that you are better than other people and that your politics are better than other people, you have alienated the very people that need to know about Christ. And by the way, you have failed in your effort to look like Christ. Um, That's just my opinion. But again, this is about my opinion. So um, I'd be very interested in hearing some feedback from other people. You can obviously reach out to me on Facebook. I'm very, very public on Facebook and more than happy to chat. Um, I'm going to finally end this with a Bible verse. I know it's strange, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think it's really important. Um, It's from Zechariah. Uh, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. If you want to exact change, it isn't through politics. It isn't through religious arguing. It's by the spirit of God. And that's all I'm going to say. That is, I'm sure, not enough on this subject matter, but I was trying to keep it within realistic term, uh, terms of time. Um, yeah, so that's it. I am going to be sharing some other books coming up. As I mentioned, we have one coming up called Jesus for President, Politics for Ordinary Radicals. That'll probably be a way down the line. Um, I have another one called Untamed. Shannon, um, oh my gosh, what is her name? I can't remember. It's called Untamed, Glennon Doyle. Uh, Another one, what's another one I have coming up? I have a fictional one coming up, you guys. I haven't done fiction before. This is going to be interesting. It's called A Man Called Ove. Um, my good friend Meg Calvin is going to be with me for that. I'm not sure when that's going to be coming up, but anyway, we have a lot of great books coming up. I'm going to find some more that I want to read and we're going to be talking about those as well. Anyway, 
I encourage each one of you, I know right now we're in a difficult time in our country. I encourage each one of you, keep your heads up, keep a smile on your face, reach out with compassion and mercy and grace, wash your hands and do your social distancing, but still smile because it's important that people know we're still connected and reach out where you can, not only for your own mental health, but for the mental health of those around you. There's plenty of platforms. Anyway, uh, much consideration, love and mercy and grace to all of you. I, I don't know if I've enjoyed the conversation because it's just me. I guess I have. Subject matter is difficult, as I said. Anyway, um, take care and I'll talk with you next time. Bye.